Welcome to the 91 Untold Change Project. I'm Neil Armand, your host for this series of podcasts. Welcome to episode four, where we'll be talking to Giles Gibbons, who is an incredible thinker around how businesses can be even more progressive and how to harness the positive energy of organizations for social purpose and social impact. I've had the pleasure of working with Giles on and off probably for 15 years now, something like that, since kick-ass days. And one of the things I've always respected about him is how he can work not just around conventional business change models, but equally looking at social change and, and how change happens there with the human beings that are at the heart of any change. And I'm sure he'll have something to say about that. But that trilogy is very close to our hearts. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it adds value to you. I'll see you after the introduction. Welcome to the 91 Untold Change Project. The whole universe is in a state of entropy. If you can unlock that higher motivation, they'll be with you. How do you create an environment where people can find meaning at work? That can create the needed culture change. How does radical change happen? You know it's a good business. In terms of our evolution, we were not required to have a conscious understanding of complex systems. What creates great innovation in the social arena? It's that bit that you take action. Have some real sense of control. Welcome, Giles. Thank you. Very, <laughs> very happy to be here on this windy day. Exactly. Welcome. Um, so, uh, maybe just to start off, can you tell us, your founder and chief executive of Good Business, what does that mean? What do you actually get up to? Yes, uh, it's a question that I continually ask myself, actually. <laughs> um, um, my mother uh, still can't explain uh, my business uh, after 25 years, so uh, it, it, it's a curious struggle. Um, but I think the best way of explaining it is the name, um, uh, Good Business. Um, we believe that uh, organizations, the way in which organizations behave uh, and how they respond to the changing um, opinions and perceptions of society are really important ways uh, that a business can um, stay relevant and um, be more successful. And so using that thought to solve business challenges by changing the way they do things. And so we yes. help organizations understand the impact that they have, uh, the um, social and environmental impact and help them think about ways in which they can change their business to stay in line with the changing uh, uh, opinions of society and in doing so, so solve their business challenges in the process. Okay. Um, that sounds terribly oblique <laughs> yeah, and, and actually I, I almost don't know what I'm talking about myself but actually it... Um, uh, it's probably if I give you a couple of examples That'd that probably great. helps more. So um, last year we worked with a company called LucasAid Ribena Suntory to take 70% of uh, sugars out of all of their drinks from now and in the future. Um, you know, they're a soft drink business. They've, they're, their number one ingredient other than water was sugar. Yes. Uh, it was a very big step for them to take and there was some regulation coming down the line but we worked with the board to say, how can you envisage your, envision your business 
in a new world where you are uh, actually a health and wellness business rather than a soft drinks business. Okay. And how does that change the products and how can we get in advance of what other soft drink businesses are doing and use that as a way of differentiating you versus your competitors? Lovely. So it's that getting out ahead of things, but also <clears throat> how to deal with change and become re remain relevant, I suppose. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, uh, this sounds terrible name dropping, but uh, uh, I, was in, <laughs> I was in New York, darling, last, uh, last week for the anniversary of the Sustainable Development Goals. And um, our very own Stephen Fry was there in, uh, at, at one of the conferences. And, and he made a very good point, and, and it's stuck with me since then, which is we believe in change. We want change to happen. The Sustainable Development Goals are 17 very ambitious goals for the world, the to-do list for the world. Yep. And they sort of almost feel almost impossible. And yet he said, I'm standing here as a gay man, married to a man, uh, that if I told you that 20 years ago, that I would be here, that I would be talking about my mental health uh, episodes uh, on stage and with no uh, issue on either of those, uh, I think you would have laughed at me 20 years ago. Yeah. But here I am doing those things. So society does change incredibly fast. Yes. Sometimes it doesn't change at all. <laughs> but other times it really changes fast. And it's incumbent upon any organization in my view to be part of that change but but not just responding to it but actually what Stuart Rose used to say when he was the chairman of uh, Marks and Spencer one and a half steps ahead you want to be ahead of your consumer but not so far ahead <laughs> that they don't understand where you're going and nice. I think that that's a really imp sort of interesting thought for any organisation. How do we how do we keep one step ahead of everybody? So um, how how do you do that? What are there questions that one, a board should ask themselves, or how does one actually stay that step ahead? Other than pay you lots of money, to <laughs> yeah, help yeah, them, obviously yeah. that's the best yeah, thing. They obviously, can do. that's the most important. Um, <laughs> um, I must remember write a note for myself uh, to, to do more of that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Um, how do they do it? How, how do we do it? How, I think it's... There is a fundamental uh, concept in change, which is um, allowing yourself to be open to it. And I think so many organisations, the problem is that they're not allowing themselves to be open to it. We did this last year. And we're going to, we better do it again in order that we make the same numbers. So I was saying earlier, I used to work, my first job was at Cadbury Schweppes. Yes. And there were 13 promotional periods. And you just knew that you had to do those promotional periods again the next year. Otherwise, you wouldn't make the same amount of money that you did the year before. Yes. Right? And it's like, well, there's no room for change then. There's no evolution. No, it's like, keep it absolutely rigid. Right. Yeah. And it's that fear in organizations that if you don't do what you did last time then it's you're, you're not going to deliver the same uh, output and then you go and see organizations that are sort of open and eyes are out and, and up and they're talking to people and they're hearing and they're sort of seeing and and uh, engaging with their stakeholders be it customers or suppliers or 
local politicians. It, you know, it can be, you know, people in your world. And you kind of go, actually, things are changing here. And yeah. Things are moving. And, and we've got to inter- integrate that into what we're doing and how we're doing it. Otherwise, we're going to be left behind. And the companies that are left behind are those ones that are stuck rigidly into saying, if we don't do this, we're not going to uh, be as good as we were the year before. So, uh, you know, you, you, you know this better than I do. It, the jacket, the cloak of rigidity is the, is the greatest um, enemy of change. So if someone was within an organisation in, in a position of power and they find themselves in an organisation wearing that jacket of rigidity and suddenly wake up and have this epiphany, we need to change, otherwise we're going to be obsolete, what can they do? How do they start to, without taking the metaphor too far, take off that jacket? Yeah. Or how does that actually work? Um. I think there is only one solution to that, um, which is that you've got to go and talk to people. You've got to, um, I mean, what we call stakeholder dialogue, which is a sort of rather noncy phrase for having conversations with people who in some way care about or understand or know about enough about you to have an opinion. Yes. You know, so, uh, you know, I... I'm, I, I don't believe that we should just talk to experts, but we should also shouldn't talk to people who have no idea about it at all and have an opinion from nothing, right? Because yeah. I don't think they're particularly useful either. But there's a rich vein of people in the middle who care enough about what you do as an organisation. And, and because they may have bought it or because they may be yeah. your next-door neighbour or because they're your shareholder or because... Um, you know, uh, you've, you worked for them before or, you know, there, there are lots of reasons why you have people in some way associated with your business. And they're an incredibly rich resource. And I think we don't use that enough. We don't just go and have conversations. Yeah. Um, and I, I sort of feel um, Charlie Mayfield, who runs, he's the chairman of John Lewis, uh, he said to me... Um, I try and spend at least a day in a store somewhere yeah. just talking to people. Yeah. Talking to the person in the haberdashery department. Yes. Talking to the person buying it. Talking to the person who arrives in the, in the, in the lorry. Talking to the person who orders it. it you know, yes. just talk to people. Listen. Uh, uh, and then I think that information is invaluable. And I think listening organisations are those that, that are able to evolve. Now, the, the work that we do is we help organisations work out what the exam question is, and then we go and talk to people on their yeah. behalf, and then we sort of hopefully put some intelligent and creative thinking around that in order to show them some options for how they may be able to change their business, change the way they communicate, change um, how they behave. Um, but, but organizations don't really need us to do that in yeah. a way. I mean, we're, we're a shorthand for it, but actually the most important is that you have a culture that is open to listening. And I think I would challenge you to find me a business which is a listening business that isn't changing. Nice. Yes, 
I think that's, and, and I would probably argue that you say you don't need me to do that. I think you're right if they're a listening business, but I probably guess that your ability to step outside and reflect back to another business is going to add incredible value and something that probably can't be replicated internally unless they have that spark. Yes, well, I mean, I suppose when you've done uh, when you've done what we've done for twenty odd years, you have a nose for what's interesting. Yeah. Um, when you're as uh, annoying and as opinionated as, <laughs> as I am, um, it means that we sort of try to um, challenge our clients and not to just hear what they want to hear. Yes. And so sometimes. You can be a listening organization. And, and by the way, what I don't mean in a listening organization is when you say, oh, well, we send out research uh, questionnaires every time a, cu a customer comes in. That, yes, that's fine, but that's not listening. Yeah. <laughs> that's mechanical. I mean genuinely listening. I mean the management out talking to different people, not in their you know, ivory tower, but out there engaging with lots of different types of people and hearing it qualitatively themselves, yes. not quantitatively. I'm hearing that al almost a curiosity as well. You, know, you can listen, but it's that curiosity to start to notice the trends, the differences. Right. You know, what, what's golden in that information? What, where's the golden thread? Mm. I think that is incredibly important. Um, I suppose we have a view because we believe that business is a force for good but sometimes uh, gets dragged down by the finance department <laughs> um, rather than that business is inherently bad yes and sometimes does some good uh that uh, uh that you can uh, we can find within what people say as a way of helping people develop in that way okay i uh... So is there, what's the difference? You know, you're called good business. Yep. I mean, you, you've used the, the term several times. What do you think is the difference between good business and bad business? Or is it just a matter of filters? It's whether you think it's a good business or not. Um, so we, we've spent many years thinking about whether we should create a mark, a good mark. And actually, in another business that I run, the Sustainable Restaurant Association, we have a mark. Yes. Uh, it is uh, the Food Made Good uh, award system, which awards a restaurant for its overall sustainability. One, two, three star, like a Michelin star. In relation to good business, I'll come back to that in a sec, but in relation to good business... One, I don't believe that you can take non-comparative businesses and give them a mark that means anything. Yeah. Um, I'll get into lots of trouble here because I'm not a huge fan of B Corps as a result. Um, because I, I feel like you can't um, uh, compare an apple juice business with a um, chip manufacturer. Um, because they're incredibly different yes. as you, and the impacts they have are very very different 
And somehow, I think if you say, okay, well, that um, chip manufacturer is a good business, and I've decided it's a good business, and I put good on it, that it's a sort of rather lazy response on both parts to the discussion, which is, I haven't got to try very hard to work out whether it's a good business or not. Yes. In my, what's good in my life or world, which could be very different to what you think is good. Yeah. Secondly, it's rather lazy on behalf of the business to say, I don't need to worry about telling people or doing anything like that because I've, it says good. Yes. And my point has always been that I want people to use why they think they're a good business as a way of showing you, the person out there, why, why you should do business with me. <laughs> yes. Right? And that's not a mark. That yeah. is, when you, when you engage with that business, you should know through every pore of that organization that it is a good business. When you go to John Lewis... And by the way, they're not a client. <laughs> when you go to Good Business, I wish they were. Uh, when you go to with John Lewis, you know it's a good business. Yes. I instinctively know it's a good business. You look the person behind the counter in the, the eye, the way they deal with you, you know, the, the relationship that you feel that they have in terms of the, the, the products they have there and what they don't have, the their refund policy, their, you know, yeah. the, the way they look after you makes me feel like they are a good business. Now, I think it's important that people wear that on their lapel. And if you don't, yeah, because you've got a mark in the right-hand corner saying you're a good business, then I think you may stop doing that. And so that's why I've always been against having a mark that says it's good. So those two reasons. I like that a lot. That it's almost what I'm hearing in that is that it's a philosophy, not just a a target. It's not something you do in order to get that mark. It, it it's a philosophy, a way of doing business, and the minute you have that philosophy, the mark becomes obsolete. Exactly that, cool. and and I genuinely don't think that I can mark. Yeah. That. I agree. It's, I mean, I like the lazy word. It does feel a little bit like in football, just hoofing the ball up the pitch. There's no nothing subtle, nothing clever, yeah. nothing um, particularly skilled around that. Although I will put the disclaimer in, I probably couldn't hoof a ball up the pitch <laughs> anymore, but there we go. <laughs> Let me go back because I, I think I probably now need to say why I created a mark yes. <laughs> for the restaurant sector, having yeah. said all of that. I think that it was, weirdly, a, a lazy uh, uh, solution on my part. But I did think that when you have something deeply compar- comparable, mm. a restaurant is fundamentally the same. doesn't matter whether it's expensive, cheap, uh, the, the, there's a thousand of them or one of them. Yes. They fundamentally work in the same way. It's a physical space. Some some ingredients come in. They are created. Those ingredients are created in some food. Some people eat it and go off, hopefully, happy. Yeah. 
so my feeling was for a sector that actually wasn't moving as fast as we thought it probably should, that actually if they had an easy way of being able to say, look, I'm doing something, that that would be a good thing. And to a certain degree, I think it's been quite a good vehicle to just go, oh, what do you mean by sustainability? I haven't got enough time. I'm running this restaurant. I haven't yeah. got enough time. Small business. I haven't got enough time. And, and the, so the, 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 the kind of rating that we did, I think, helped them go, okay, yeah, well, actually, we do all that. We do that. We do that. But we don't do that. Fine, I'll do that. Yes. Do I think that a single diner has gone to a restaurant because it's got a three-star rating, sustainability rating? No, I don't think so. Really? I don't think so. I think that you go to a restaurant because you think it's going to be good. And then you're pleasantly surprised yes. that it does it with care and attention. But actually, I come back to the same thing, which is I actually want the restaurant to ooze goodness yes. out of every pore rather than just say, oh, the sustainable restaurant association gave me this mark now if they're really good it should ooze out of the poor any every poor Absolutely. anyway yes but i don't want people sort of uh thinking that this mark is going to get in the way of what i really believe you should do which is to run a good business and exhibit that in every yeah. way and i think you will know if you go to a restaurant uh actually the uh 2018, 19, Sustainable Restaurant of the Year is Poco in Bristol. Okay. I don't, I don't know if you've been to it. Not yet. You should go. If only we'd known that, we'd have Ooh. gone because of their star rating. Okay. <laughs> now, if you go to Poco, I challenge you, I challenge you to say that you need a rating to tell you that that's a sustainable restaurant. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. It's in the smiles of the staff. It's in the quality of the food. It's in the care and attention that they give um, to their diners and to the community around them. And it's it's in every pore of that uh, of that restaurant. You don't need a mark when you're doing it well. Uh, that that really sits well with me, and it actually brings me back to something you said in 2016. Mason's been doing his homework oh my and God. digging up comments you made from years ago. I don't think this will be a shock to you. Okay. <laughs> this isn't a child, childhood photo or anything yeah. like that. Um, but it, it did interest me at the time uh, that you were saying that there have been several movements in with organizations around social impact. And I think the four that you listed out was corporate philanthropy, CSR, corporate social responsibility, sustainability, and then purpose-led. Uh, I'm not sure whether you still hold that as true or whether you think it's evolved even further since, mm -hmm. but I, I'm hearing in what you're saying that purpose-led, if you've got that purpose and you're really into that purpose, then all the other stuff comes together. Um. Short answer is yes. Um, the longer answer is that those were all simply management tools um, to sort of help organizations think and do what it, they were able to do at that point in time in the history of corporate responsibility and over the last sort of 25 years. 
And each time, it's been getting closer to the fundamental, which is you don't do it on the outside of your business. It's about what you do on the inside. And it's about how you then express yourself through every, every pore of that business. Now, if you think from corporate philanthropy, which is that we're nice people because we give some of our profits away to charity, through to purpose-led, which is that we understand as a group of people uh, that we have a that we are making a contribution to society whilst and making money in doing that. And if you genuinely do that through your business, from the core of your business, then you are a good business. You know, yeah. People will see that. They will feel it. They will. They will understand it. And so, effectively, that has the, that's been the journey that we have gone on, and that we've tried to help organisations do is to sort of is to centre mm. uh, the impact that they're having from the from the core of the business, not from the uh, outside of of the business. Will bad things happen in a purpose-led company? Absolutely. Yes. Unfortunately, the world is not perfect. Yes. And I, I don't... We could have a very long conversation about purpose because I'm very interested in it. Imagine. <laughs> um, but bad things happen, you know, but, they, but not in the name of that purpose, but bad things happen because people make silly decisions. Yes. Um, so I don't want anyone to think that just because we're purpose-led, oh, oh, it's all sorted. We've got a purpose. We're all sorted. Absolutely not. But if you're genuinely, as it says, leading a business by its awareness, understanding, and delivery of that purpose, then you're going to be a better business. And you talk there about how you express yourself on the inside being an important part of that. If someone's listening who's in a leadership role or has some, oh, you're an entrepreneur starting a business, how do you do that? What do you do in order to create that internal expression? Are there specific things you'd recommend or thoughts you have around how that can be best formed? Funny enough, one of the things that I think I've never needed to teach an entrepreneur a real entrepreneur yeah. is to express how they're feeling on the inside in their business. I mean, how many small businesses do you go into and you kind of go, this, this is this is like holding a mirror up to the, the entrepreneur in the, the walls, you know, it's, yes. it's there. It's the way it works is the character of that person. And that's why so many sort of small businesses are sort of so wonderful in a sense because they are expressions of normally a founder or a few people yeah um because they, they're not trying to um package it up and put it into a, a, a tube of toothpaste and try and tell people whose whose idea that isn't and, and so in a sense I'm not worried about entrepreneurs. I'm worried yeah. about everybody else, to okay. be honest. Uh, because, <laughs> so let's, let's focus on that. Yeah, then. because, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you got up in the morning and said, I care enough to risk putting my livelihood, you know, on the line because yeah. I believe in this idea and this group of people are with me to try and deliver that, you're pretty purpose-led already, yeah. if I'm honest. Okay. You know, I wonder if you walk around 
your office building here. Yeah. Lots of small businesses. And you walk into each one of those and you talk to the people in them. I don't think you'll find people who aren't able to say what they're feeling inside outward. They care about what they're doing. They're passionate about it. They're here on a Tuesday night trying to make it work. Yes. You know, those are the people who... That's and they may not have all the right answers. It may not work. It may fall down. But I don't think the problem is that they can't open themselves outwardly okay. and, and find how to do that in a personal, personal and um, values-led way. Okay. And are there expressions of that in bigger organisations or, or ideas or ways people are treated? I mean, you mentioned John Lewis's and partners yeah. earlier, and I mean, also you you talked about where a finance department gets in the way, and yeah. I recognise that Mason and I actually. Yesterday, are in a finance department. Yeah, no. yeah. you are the finance. <laughs> we department. are the fi- We are everything. Yeah. Um, we're, we're talking about being able to go into a hotel and tell the difference in a hotel between one that's hospitality led and really cares about hospitality and one that's run by accountants. Yeah, and it, you know the difference is subtle but huge potentially. Uh, so, what are those things that? You know, what are the ways or the ways of treating staff or you know, is that something you're interested in? Do, they, do you have advice in that area? Well, again, it's going to sound like I've got shares in John Lewis, but you can't buy shares in it because, <laughs> because it's owned by the staff. And that's an interesting point. Yes. Isn't it? Look what they did six months ago. Here's an organization in a, in a sector that is on its knees, being absolutely crippled by Amazon. Um, again, not because they're a bad business, but the, the world is changing super fast around them and they're stuck with 10 million square feet of, uh, of buildings. So the legacy of an old sector with a new sector coming and challenging it. And what did they decide to do? They decided to rebrand the business, John Lewis and Partners, Waitrose and Partners. So at the, at the moment where you could say, actually, now is the moment where we stop all this naffing around about values and, we, and the finance department starts taking over and we start cracking yeah. the whip. What do they do? They do the opposite. They seek to remind us that this is a different business that is owned, run by a very proud group of 25,000 people who work in those stores day in and day out to deliver you a great service. And they're reminding us of that in order that we go, actually, I do quite like going and buying a bed at John Lewis rather than going on the internet. And I am getting great advice. And actually, when I'm there, rather than taking that advice and then going home and buying it on Amazon just because I can get yeah. it 10% cheaper, actually... How bad would it be if that wasn't on the high street anymore? Yes. And I think that that's a really important point because so many organisations say to me, look, Giles, I really like what you're doing. It's really important. But actually, we're having some really big issues at the moment. So we just need to get over those issues and then we'll come and talk to you about your stuff. Yeah. And that's wrong. <laughs> that is wrong, right? And I say, no, we're not the frilly stuff on yeah. the edges. This is the stuff that actually gets people within businesses 
thinking differently, changing, moving, motivating themselves to actually create change. And I guarantee you, if you go into a John Lewis and a Waitrose, yeah. since they've rebranded, there's a spring in the step yes. of those of, of their partners, their colleagues. Why? Because someone has said that they are the difference. Yes. Yeah, you can go and get those products elsewhere. But actually, remember, this isn't just about some products. It's about a group of people who are bringing that to you. And I think that's what we need to be reminded of. And, and I think that's very powerful. I, I absolutely agree on that. And it sort of brings to mind a conversation we had earlier where we were talking about 16 as a number of people in, yes. a, in a team. And, and you were saying that that seems to be the, the number at which you can create, I think the word you used was family yeah. atmosphere or, or family feel. How do you think about the future of businesses? Do you think there will be big changes? Do you think it will be Apple and Google and Amazon and maybe Uber own the world? Or is there something different going to be happening? Um, Mike, if you take something like Microsoft, I think one of the things that people around Microsoft because they gave it such a hard time in the 80s before then all the other ones got bigger than it, it did. But they created a software system that enabled an, a human being basically to be able to talk and communicate via technology to anyone else in the world. Mm. Why? Because we were all using the same software system. Now, that was actually a really cool thing. Yeah. Right? It was a bit like everyone speaking English suddenly, yes. right? And just think if there had been a myriad of bits of software on, a, on all those different computers, we'd, we still wouldn't have been able to talk to each other. So, you know, big is sometimes good. I think big is also sometimes bad. Yeah. Small is sometimes good. Small is bad. I would agree with you on that, by the way. I genuinely... <laughs> just so we're shocked together. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I genuinely don't think that we're going to get to a situation where we only have big businesses or only have small businesses. Um, uh, we work for WeWork. That's, a, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We work for WeWork, yeah. um, which is a uh, co-working, fast-growing co-working space yes. uh, in uh, now global. And... Um, I went. I was in their new Devonshire Square building, um, twenty-five thousand square feet, and it's all decked out. It's uber cool, and you know, there's free beer on tap, and you know, everyone's sort of hanging out with their Macs, and you kind of go, "Wow, this is amazing!" But what's unbelievable is how many small businesses, individuals, are working but they feel like they're in a group of thousands of others and they're working together and they're doing stuff together. So I do think, to your point, that we are going to see a big change in the size of organisations because you don't need loads of people, as I was saying yeah. earlier, for, for many roles. And when you go into a WeWork and you see all of those people, you go, oh my God, do all these people have their own businesses? Yes. <laughs> it's like... What did we do before? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. Um, the day before I went, I was at um, Somerset House at an organization called Makeaversity, which is an incredibly cool social enterprise. 
So we've got sort of 300, 400 designers who are all making their own products, but they share production facilities. Now that's cool. Really cool. Do you, so I think yeah. that we are going to see lots of new types of, um, of organizations sort of grow, but I think we'll continue to have big ones and we'll have small ones. Okay. My, my other point on this, uh, and this is relatively challenging, but I think it's a really important point for the future. I think that the concept of charity and business is going to go. Okay. I think it should go. I think the nomenclature of charity, and just to go into the theory of it a bit, is really unhelpful because, and I'm sure you've come across this as well, I could tell you a whole bunch of entrepreneurial charities that are far more business-like than some businesses. Yes. And I could tell you some businesses that are far more charitable than a bunch of charities. Yes. And we've got this weird thing, which is that we have a name. It's a bit like the good thing. Some of these things are called charities and don't pay tax. And there's some businesses that do pay tax, unless you're Amazon, and then you don't have to pay tax at all for whatever reason. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that's unhelpful because one of the things when I go into organizations is they sort of go, well, we're a business. So... That not that what charities do? Mm. And, and then you go and, ch- you know, that it stops people opening their mind to the impact that they could have because of the nomenclature that they've been given at the beginning. And, and I think that if we got rid of those two things and just talked about organisations, I actually think that more businesses w- would be more impact-led and, and actually more charities would probably be more entrepreneurial, yes. right? And we'd stop this absurd thing that we decide whether we're a charity or a business. Because I think all organisations are fundamentally the same. I really like that. I, I, I think that's a really useful point. And one I, I, I'd endorse, I mean, 91 Untold is uh, a company, um, a profit-making company, not quite enough profit sometimes, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> profit-making yeah. nonetheless. Kick-Ass in the old days w- where we first met yeah. um, was obviously a charity. Yeah. So have, have led both. Uh, and one of the things I often say is I find running 91 Untold far more honest or running the company far more honest in many ways than running the charity. Because there's a a very clear pathway to money and how it works and the social impact that we can make. I would also argue we probably uh, make at least the same social impact now that we used to, like for like, as as we used to as a charity. So it it is an interesting space and I'm actually quite cynical about a lot of charities and I think there's a real opportunity in what you're saying. Yeah, I just think, let's strip it away. Let's just be an organisation. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I run um, a charity called the Para Orchestra, yep. um, which is located in Bristol, you'll be pleased to hear. Fantastic. In the We Are Curious building. And the Para Orchestra is the only elite disabled orchestra in the world. Uh, and we have an amazing uh, team, and they get we do we put on concerts, and people come and see those concerts. Um, but 
partly because of the disabilities of some of the players. It's expensive to run. It's expensive to get them around. We have to pay for their carers, etc. And so we are supported by foundations, give them some money, and we get an Arts Council grant. We run it as a business, but it gets funding from wherever it can in order to operate yes. and be successful. Now, it is actually a charity. Yep. But I don't know how I would run it differently if it was a business or a charity. It is just an organisation, right? Interesting. And, you know, I run a my business, good business. Our biggest client is the Gates Foundation. We run all of uh, the Gates Founders, uh, Foundation's smoking prevention work across Africa. It's a foundation paying us, good business, a for-profit, a grant to run that work. Do we make a profit out of it? Yes, we do make a profit out of it. Yeah. If we were a charity, would we do it any different? No. Yes. <laughs> so I don't understand why we have these non-locatures. I think they're, they are from a, an old uh, time yeah. when businesses didn't think about their role in society and run themselves in such a way that they think about that as a way of succeeding in business. And secondly, that most charities cannot depend simply on philanthropy in order to succeed. So they have to be more entrepreneurial about yes. that, getting that money. So let's have a system that actually represents <laughs> the progressiveness that organisations have got to now not a Victorian concept of charity and business. I, I really, that sits very well with me. And the, the honesty that I was talking about in the commercial world, I suppose, comes from those challenges from funders where, you know, a, a social entrepreneur who knows how to make a difference will often get a funder coming in saying, but we'd like you to do it like this. I mean, we, we had that with the Department of Health yep. uh, when we were running Kickass. They wanted us because we were so innovative. They wanted us because we knew how to engage young people and create change, social change. And we signed, I think it was a half a million pound contract with them at one point. And just after we'd, we'd signed it, they came in and said, well, the minister's not very happy with this bit of it. Uh, we, I think it was NLP at the time. Could you use CBT instead of NLP? And we are like, well, no, because it works in a completely different way and won't achieve the same results. And they said, and I, we've noticed you swear a little bit in some of your... Well, we're talking about sexual health. It's like, what are we talking about here? It's like, how can you talk to a young person around it without using some interesting terminology? And I think... It, it's the that third party piece. Yeah. So I, I'd certainly endorse charities having more of a feel. If they've got a passion for something, if they know how to make that change, asking the question, how can we actually achieve that change? And who are those partners who believe in that and who aren't, rather than just, well, we need our mission is to keep our people employed. Uh, which right. in either a charity or a business, you have at times, but uh, there was no question there. Um, I suppose the question you spoke about, I suppose, of the potential of charities becoming this thing that is obsolete, that it's no longer necessary. If you put your futurologist's hat on, are there any careers or industries? Obviously, retail is, you spoke about John Lewis's and the struggles mm. in retail at the moment. What, what industries or professions or careers do you think are going to be obsolete in 
five, ten years, whatever the time scale is. How do you think the world's going to be a bit Certainly different? yours and mine. Yeah. We're all done, mate. Yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to start answering it um, by referencing, curiously, um, the Governor of the Bank of England, uh, who did a speech 10 days ago uh, in Northern Ireland um, about the next Industrial Revolution. And I think I haven't heard anyone put it as crisply as this. And this is about the impact of technology and AI as we go into the next Industrial Revolution. And he said, the first Industrial Revolution was about hands, making, doing. The second was about head, using our, our brain. And the third is about our heart. And there is no way that a computer mm. can be emotional in the way that we, as human beings, can when you you know something's right and yes. or, or wrong and that you need to change and I suppose rather than saying what are going to disappear because I could give you a long list of well we're not going to need lower level yeah. admin jobs and da 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 but that's a bit dull <laughs> I think I'd rather say think about those things which use our heart yes because. And I don't want it to sound soft because it's not a kind of soft concept. I think it's a it's a hard concept. It's a very clear thing. It's like we need to think about the roles where we can never be supplanted by a computer, however clever it gets, and there will always be a job where you're using your heart in some way. And I, that doesn't mean that we're going to become heart surgeons or, <laughs> or, um, or chaplain, uh, you know, uh, chaplains, although you could do those things because I think that they probably, they may become ever more important. But I do think thinking about those roles that need emotional intelligence mm. are the ones that will be the winners in the future. I think there's hope for us within that if we start thinking of ourselves as facilitators of the heart within organisations and within people, maybe maybe there's hope for our careers. Yet. I, well, I, I, I really hope so because <laughs> I'm not done yet. <laughs> um, I was reading uh, Good Business Friday Five, yes, uh, which came out this morning, the the latest one, and I. I thoroughly endorse it. Anyone who isn't subscribed to it at the moment, it's a great uh, little weekly email that comes out uh, from Good Business. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that really hit me was a, a trial in Leeds that you talked about in yeah. there by Hubbub and EcoSurity uh, around recycling and putting recycling bins in the city centre and that sort of thing. And the, the one that really jumped out at me was the bubble bins and the use of innovation that was going on, uh, where I think, if I remember the, the mail correctly, you put in a can or a, a plastic bottle and bubbles are, are, are blown out. Yeah. Um, in terms of change, and you know, I've always been fascinated by what is it that, that creates change? How do we get people to change 
behaviors on social issues and things like that and yeah another one that that comes to mind are the the sort of bins around cigarette butts or something like that a voting system yes or no and I, I saw one in Norway recently when I was on a holiday where the the sign said uh, women are statistically more likely to tip apparently and we're, we're testing this out and then there were two plates one for men and one for women and men put their tips in one and you know it just seemed like a very clever way for a small restaurant uh, cafe to to just get more tips coming yeah. in to remind people with your experience you've got vast experience mm. of these sort of social initiatives and that sort of thing how does that work why does it work does indeed it it work what's the what's almost the science behind that um so behavior change um <laughs> I, <laughs> in I, five minutes <laughs> So, well, actually, I don't even need five minutes because I've, I've always got, got this... You know how sometimes in business you think that people talk about something in sort of hushed academic tones as if there's a sort of something uh, sort of new and different and something that we're learning that no one's ever thought about before. And then you kind of go, I haven't people in business been trying to persuade people to buy products and services since the year dot isn't that behavior change well yes that is that's how we change you know so what's the difference now with this whole thing of you know behavior change and it's this new behavioral science when it sort of feels to me like it's been going on for years. In my earlier career, I used to work for Saatchi and Saatchi and, uh, in advertising. And, you know, we spent our lives sitting there trying to work out how to persuade people to change their behavior by buying something that they hadn't bought before. Yeah. Or that when you walk, walk into Tesco's, that you're walking along the aisle and you end up buying Marmite, not marmalade. Yes. Well... Someone's thought bloody hard about that, right? <laughs> and so I find it sort of slightly weird that we think that there's this sort of whole new thing out there, which is behavior change, which is the sort of, there isn't a huge amount of evidence out there. And for me, changing behavior on, in social issues is exactly the same as trying to get someone to buy a product or, agreed. Uh, or a service. Absolutely agreed. And, and so we, we try not to cloak this in uh, um, sort of the sort of science of it and just say well let's start as we did when when we were trying to sell a product which is who's the audience what are they thinking now what can you say or provide to them that they would be interested in that would challenge their thinking from where it is now to what we want it to be and in the process, hopefully change their point of view. And you can do that if it's a social issue or if it's a product. So the, the, the um, smoking prevention work that we uh, do in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and the reason, just to give it, uh, so that it, it doesn't feel oblique, uh, there is a rising middle class in Africa, huge growth in young, obviously young people as well. They've got more money in their pocket what did us stupid Europeans and Americans do? We went and spent that money on cigarettes 
because we wanted to look aspirational and cool in comparison to people who couldn't afford it. How can we persuade them not to do that? Mm. What Bill Gates calls vaccinating a generation against smoking. And there's lots of things that they're doing to try and do that. But what we did was we went and talked to 13-year-olds across sub-Saharan Africa and asked them how they felt about why they did things and why they didn't do things. And we realized that if we tell people that uh, to not smoke because it's bad for you, they ignore us because they're 13 and they think they're going to live forever. and so we, we didn't, there's no tobacco discussion or in the campaign that we run there at all. What we do is we say, what do you stand for? And what do you not stand for? How do you, what do you want, to, what do you want to be? And what do you not want to be? What are you proud to be? What are you not proud to be? And what happens is they work together to build up what they stand for and what they don't stand for. And that gives them the confidence to say no to alcohol to say no to smoking because they don't want that to be what people see in them and so the program just has says okay this is where 13 year olds are and this is how we believe we can help them change for this social issue and not take up smoking yeah and that's how the program works in the same way that if we were actually trying to sell them cigarettes <laughs> yeah. 20, 20 years ago. <laughs> Although I didn't ever no, sell anyone no, cigarettes. No, no. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, I'm sorry, that was slightly longer than five minutes. But my point is, it's not rocket science. Yeah. I think think about the person. Think about where they're at. Think about how you might be able to challenge that person's perceptions and change it by changing things around them or the people or the peers, etc. and what they're saying uh, to move them to a new place. Um, don't don't cloud it in in science. Talk to them, <laughs> which which in a wonderful way comes back to some of the stuff that we were saying at the beginning of of the podcast in terms of listening to people, getting curious, and honouring them. You know, honouring the good side rather than focusing on on the negatives. And that, that's something that I think you do incredibly well. Mm. I know from working with you over the years that you've made a tremendous impact, often behind the scenes, and other people have taken the glory for it. Uh, so on that's behalf kind of, of all... Say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of all the people who don't know they were supported by you, thank you so much. I really, I really hope that you continue doing what you're doing. I look forward to hopefully a few more adventures together. We haven't done many in, in recent years. And maybe lunch at Poco to, to, to see that I, uh, beautiful restaurant at I, play. I think that's a perfect <laughs> next step. Uh, so Giles, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for your wisdom. And I look forward to talking to you again very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please subscribe. Uh, and if you're willing, take a moment to leave us a rating or review. This podcast is also video recorded. So if you want to see our guests in glorious Technicolor, please head over to YouTube. Uh, I believe it's youtube.com forward slash 91 Untold. But as with all our social accounts, just search for 91 Untold or the 91 Untold Change Project, and I'm sure you'll find us. Now, of course, this is intended as a project. So if you want to get involved in the discussion, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, Please head over to Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter um, and join the conversation. 